Hey, what is going on? Welcome to this episode number 75 of Life and Lessons. Today, you're going to hear a conversation I had with Ollie Horton. Ollie is a personal trainer, the host of the Stripping It Bare podcast, and somebody that I've known from afar for a little while. And as you'll discover in this conversation, as I did at the time, if there's one person who I could sit and rift with for hours on topics I really care about, Ollie would definitely be close to the top of that list. In the next hour, you're going to learn the power of consistent actions compounded over years of life and how they will get you further than any single quantum leap. Why those in the positions you aspire to be are actually just winging it and how that's a massively empowering insight. The real reason why I don't buy lottery tickets and why I'm scared at the prospect of winning the lottery. The full story behind my decision to go sober, which is one that I've never really shared in this much detail before and so much more. Ollie and I clearly have a lot in common when it comes to our perspectives on personal development, on making progress in life and on trying unusual things. And so I think that's what's really great about this conversation. It's it's far less formal than most of the guest episodes we've had in the past, but that is only a good thing. And I think that you're really going to enjoy this one. But just before then, if you're new here, do make sure that you're subscribed to Life and Lessons on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you're listening right now. I say this all of the time, but it is true. There are so many more great conversations just like this one coming your way in the next few months, and I don't want you to miss them. But in the meantime, here it is. Episode number 75 of Life and Lessons with Ollie Horton. Sean, hello. How are you? That that recording noise just made me jump out of my skin, but I'm very well. How are you? Before, so I don't know why it just happened now. I was like, oh no, I've ruined it. <laughs> my speakers are turned up really loud and <laughs> fucking I literally I was like, whoa. No, um, nice to nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I've been following you for a while, I've been following your podcast for a while, and uh, I just thought I'd reach out and get you on. And then when you said you've listened to the uh, stripping of bear a couple of times, I got a little bit oh, a little bit fanboyed. But it's nice to have you on, mate. I um, I spend the longest time thinking that you were Adam Horton's brother, and then one day I just asked him. I'm like, "Are you related to Ollie?" And he's like, "No, we um, you went to the same school or something, didn't you?" Yes, we went to the same school. Um, he's been on the podcast as well. Very intelligent guy, but he actually he lived next door to my very first girlfriend. Um, so yeah, we went to the same oh, school. Wow. We lived next okay. door to her, so but we were never related. And he's actually he's the second person I know with the same last name. So I don't know if it's something in the Hortons. I don't know. But he's a he's a very good man, and he's a, he's doing really yeah. well for himself, which I'm which is super cool to see. So if anyone wants to listen to that episode, beginning with a tangent before we even go into it, the um the amount of people you spot with your surname when you have a slightly different surname because of like confirmation bias and frequency bias is insane. Like I know so many spooners I'm not related to just because I'm kind of on yeah. high alert. Looking yeah, you out see for them it. pop up and you're like, oh, interesting. So when I was at primary school, there was actually another person called Ollie Horton, and he was in the year below me. And I just thought that was bizarre because it's not like a very common name. It's not like I'm called like John Smith. It's like I only know another Horton for ages until I met Adam. So anyway, we shan't get into names. Um, Life and Lessons, your podcast. I'm going to start. I know we said we're not going to do this like an interview, but what's the biggest lesson you reckon you've learned in your life? The biggest lesson I've learned, and this isn't going to come across well for people listening to audio, but let me grab something. Two seconds. 
I have this framed, which is a James Clear chart taken from the book, The Slight Edge. And it is about the idea of compounding interest in life and the idea that absolutely nothing happens overnight. Absolutely nothing happens as the result of one big step or one big piece of action. And that actually everything happens through mundane, slow, boring, repetitive tasks and actions that most people don't have the will to stick at. And I spent my late teens, early 20s, trying to build businesses, thinking that I had to do the next big thing, right? Back when it was Corby Magazine, we had to be all over the news because we were working with a PR guy, right? So we thought that the the key to unlocking our success was when we were on BBC Breakfast, daytime TV, on the news, right? That was going to be business success. Spoiler, it wasn't, right? Then I left that business and I thought, you know what, I need to prove to myself that I'm a real business person. I need to do something big. So I went on the BBC's Young Apprentice and I thought when I'm sat in that boardroom with Alan Sugar, that will be success. It'll be that big thing. Spoiler, it wasn't. I got fired in week two. It didn't go very well. Um, the next thing I ran, Magnet, was a men's lifestyle magazine in London. I thought Richard Branson on our cover of the first issue will tee us up incredibly. We're going to be a massive business. We're going to be hugely successful because we have one of the best known entrepreneurs on the planet interviewed on our cover. It fizzled out. The business didn't work. And it was only about four years ago when I read the book, The Slight Edge, that I realized that the values I had been aiming for and the map I had been using to navigate this world of business and life was the wrong one. I always thought that it was about taking big steps and big actions and that that's what moves the needle. It was only when I realized that actually there is there's a benefit to living quite a boring, quite a repetitive life because it is those repetitive actions that add up. I think that that is the lesson that has changed my life the most. What about you? Can I copy the same answer? But it wasn't reading the, it wasn't reading the slight edge. <laughs> it was reading two books, actually. Um, the 4-Hour Workweek and Atomic Habits probably like the most cliche books you could read as someone who's interested in self-development but yeah 100 the the one percent better every day that he mentions in that that by the end of the year you were 37 and a half times better than you were but i also think you you said something in another episode that you did which i listened to the other day it's it's um doing the right things the majority of the time instead of i think there's this misconception at the minute that you have to hustle quote unquote all the time you have to be grinding nonstop, 100%, 10 hours a day. And I, I got sucked into that trap thinking if I want to become successful, then I have to be working 12-hour days, seven days a week, no time off. And it's just not the case. And like you say, if you just say like, an, say like Instagram, for example, the best way to grow it, unless you get lucky or whatever, is just posting regularly all year. There's no other secret. People are like, oh, what about hashtag algorithms? And it's like, no, good value consistently will, will better yourself. And I think that, and you have to remind yourself a lot of it, a lot of time that you have to do these boring, repetitive things. It's not quick. It's not easy. It's not shiny and flashy like you see. It's pretty boring. <laughs> but yeah, to sum it up that. I think that it's it's a, an interesting thing in our generation. Not that I've ever lived through <laughs> any other generation. So maybe How I'm not qualified to say this. However, um, 25, yeah. 25, 25. Oh, 27. I look, I still got ID'd for Red Bull. So can't I mean, I don't know how old I look, but it will pay off one day when I'm 40 and look 26. Um, the There's an interesting thing about our generation, which is that 
everything is instant, right? From Amazon Prime turning up tomorrow to Deliveroo to Tinder, where you can literally, quote unquote, find a wife in theory, like in a swipe, everything's instant. And so I think that people try and extrapolate that out into finding success. And it's where things like the the crypto boom has come from, right? Whilst Peter Watson, somebody who I think we both know, will, will say that Bitcoin is inherently valuable and he's managed to convince me to buy a little bit of that. All of these shit coins like fucking Dogecoin and SafeMoon, like people aren't investing. They're thinking that they can get instant results. And I think that um, there's nothing sustainable about hustle culture and there's actually nothing productive about it. And I say that as somebody who in my very early 20s would watch every Gary Vaynerchuk video and think that I needed to think that getting not enough sleep was a badge of honor, thinking that eating shit food in the office was a badge of honor, thinking that quote unquote working for 16 hours a day was a badge of honor. And actually when I stripped all of those things back and began again, and you know, I, I probably work seven hours a day ish now and only like four hours of that mm-hmm. a deep work. Like you don't need to do these big extreme things. And also you don't need to try and find shortcuts. That's where I was going with the crypto thing. I couldn't work out where I was going. I lost my train of thought, but you don't try and need to find shortcuts, right? And I think that through the free books that we've mentioned and dozens of others that have changed the way I see the world, the general consensus of people who have been there and done that is that it is just about doing the work. There is no I shortcut. I think you're right. I think there's also like a, an imposter syndrome that if you are only to work, you know, four to five hours a day, say, you're almost thinking... Is, is this it? Is this all I need to do? Like that it, I think because we get sucked into that at early age, we get sucked into that. You need to do a nine to five, say a 40 hour work week, whatever that you have to be working. But realistically, when you're in an office, I've had loads of office jobs and you don't actually do eight hours of work. Like you say, you barely probably do three. You probably just sit there for half the time chatting or, or browsing or something you shouldn't be. And it's, I don't know. I think it's, I think you're right. I think it is this generation. But I think, there are studies in um in James Clear's book Deep sorry um Cal Newport's book Deep Work he talks about the idea that studies have been done of like the top performers the top knowledge workers and they get no more than 4 hours worth of work done a day so and maybe this is an interesting segue given that today is your first day of self employment now that you've had lots of office jobs right what have you learned about what goes wrong in offices that you're going to change to make sure that you are both more productive yes but actually happier now that you can control all the variables put me right on the spot here sure i think i think management culture is a big thing but i do i i want to say i do believe it's changing with our generation which is is probably a positive i I think gone are the days so i've just finished working for a local authority which is very sort of regimented in the 70s 80s 90s work structure of manager and then it trees down to sub managers sub managers employees etc i think i think that's something that does need to change in offices generally i think what would i change is that like you say you don't need to do that much work um chris williamson who obviously you've had on your show and i'm trying to get on here if he is listening uh he did an episode with gregory i don't want to say his name wrong is it mccown mckeown mccown mccown that's the one greg mckeown i know i've pronounced it wrong McEwen, <laughs> um, yeah. but he has this theory that you find sort of like your upper limit of work whether it be half an hour 45 minutes an hour whatever and you just do that period of time and then take a break then come back to something again take a break and i think that's what i will try and implement is when i have free time is not trying to fill the free time with work but or just instead have say three tasks that i need to get done if i get them done that day that's what done is because i think i've struggled in the past with 
you have this massive to-do list and you don't feel accomplished unless you tick everything off it. But instead of, okay, well, today's Tuesday. All I need to get done is this and this today, and that's good for today. Maybe another day when I feel a bit better, I can do a bit more if I'm not training myself and not try and burning out. So it's interesting today is the first day in about a year that I've changed the structure Mm. of my to-do list. So about this time last year, I was on a walk in lockdown as everyone was listening to a podcast and I was listening to um, another Chris Williamson <laughs> talent boy, um, Johnny from Propane Fitness, <laughs> literally <laughs> Johnny from Propane Fitness was talking about his uh, like workday structure. And I kind of took that, looked in a few other places and I made this, I used Bear rather than Notes on my um, Mac. Uh, I made this template, which I followed every single day since then. And it's basically the most important task then two important tasks and then two less important tasks, right? And that was how I always structured my day for the last year. So I would always, without fail, get the most important tasks done, generally get the two secondarily most important tasks done, and that was okay. But then I found this trend happening, particularly recently as things have got busier, as I've tried to pick up the podcast and newsletter and all these other things, which is that almost invariably, I would not get those final two tasks done. And it was only over this long weekend when I was thinking about how can I kind of further refine uh, these little systems to be more productive. I thought, actually, I'm not ever going to plan to do those final two tasks anymore. To your point of only having two or three things on a to-do list, as of today, my work to-do list, other than like reactive and phone calls and things like this, I plan three tasks. That is it. I'm running an agency with offices and staff and clients and cash flow and all these things. And all I need to do is three things a day. And that moves the business forward. So I think it is a myth to tell ourselves that we can get 10 or 15 or 20 things done a day because we both know and everyone listening knows that you're not going to get that full to-do list done. And you're just teaching yourself you're to fail. You're teaching then. yourself to fail and you're also teaching yourself like guilt becomes a big thing. You will, you inevitably, if you have 10 things on and you only get two done, you will feel guilty. Whereas if you have two things and you tick both of them off, a sense of accomplishment. And you, it's more like we say, we said before about more sustainable and 1% better every day. Those two things might take you four hours, but it might be the most productive four hours that you could have done to move your business forward. And it's like, as well as that, something I've done now is try and plan downtime into a schedule as well. It's not always got to do this, got to do this, got to do this. It's like, well, maybe I could have tomorrow off and be fine with that. And that's something I've really trained my brain with is to be okay with doing nothing. And it's something which plagued me in the past with guilt and like anxiety and stuff. It's always feeling the need to do something. So training your brain to switch off is just as important as being able to switch on and crank out, crank out that to-do list. I think just to add to that, that it's almost more important to have a structure around your free time yeah. than it is your work because they bleed into each other so much. And I know I keep referencing my early 20s, but they were like a, a car crash when it comes to trying to be productive and get things done. But something that I fell into the trap of, and it speaks again to this point of hustle culture, is that I would try and work at the cost of everything else. And so that meant being in the office from, say, 9 a.m. until 10, 11 midnight sometimes because, you know, we were a a team of essentially zero other than the founders trying to build something. Now, whilst that seemed productive in the short term, a few things inevitably happened. Firstly, because I had accounted for nothing but work, things like food, like time to eat good food just wasn't there. Things like the weekend, which is very important to not burn out immediately, wasn't there. And it was only when I kind of flipped that script 
and was like, okay, I need to get, so I, I use a whoop band to track my sleep. I make sure that I get nine hours of sleep opportunity every night, right? If I don't get that, that's not ideal. So I plan my day around that sleep. And then I plan my day around trying to eat certain meals and going for a walk and learning and reading a book and all this stuff. And actually focusing so much on the not work stuff, I think I might be post-rationalizing, but I think has made me way more productive. In oh, okay. I don't know if I can mention his name again, but the Modern Wisdom host, he, um, he said on your podcast, he said that Chris. sleep is the biggest competitive advantage which people are leaving on the table. And again, going back to the hustle culture, the Margaret Thatcher made it inevitably cool to only get four or five hours of sleep a night. Well, look what happened, you know, early onset of whatever illnesses came on. And the idea that you can be productive long-term with bad sleep is, is bullshit. It really is. Have you read the book Why I We Sleep? I, listen, I think Walker. we all did. We listened to the Joe Rogan podcast and all of a sudden we all thought, oh my God, my whole university life was a, was a mistake. Yeah. It, it scared me to death reading that book. The um, I always butcher these stats, but things like after 16 hours without sleeping, you're like nine times more likely to be in a fatal car crash. Your cognitive ability is massively diminished. Your chances of getting cancer, of getting Alzheimer's, of getting all of these diseases, like a lack of sleep is a carcinogenic. Yeah. That's crazy. And yet, for whatever reason, this generation puts everything before sleep at the cost of productivity because it's not even like it's making you more productive it's making you less productive it's just giving you the illusion the shortcut to go back to our other point that you're doing more or actually doing I, less and this is a problem with with a lot of like self-development books and what successful people quote unquote say it's you know get up early and okay like you know if you're someone who goes to bed early then you can get up early but if you're someone who likes working in the evening then why force yourself to get up early? Just set your alarm for eight, eight and a half hours from when you actually go to bed, if you can, and that's fine. And this is what I say to my clients. It's like, you, you need eight hours sleep, right? But you don't have to go to bed at 9 a.m., 9 p.m., sorry, and wake up at 5 a.m. Like, you can go at midnight, but as long as your bedtime is sort of around the same time every night, your body will find that rhythm, and that's okay. Like, don't kill yourself trying to force yourself to get up at 5am to join Robin Sharma's 5am club. If it's going to impact you and you're just going to be tired for the day and not get anything done and you're just going to sit in front of your laptop and think, oh, I'm being really productive, but really you're just staring at a screen, flicking from tab to tab, not getting anything done. Because we've all been there. That's, that's a lesson I've had to teach myself because um, other than this time last year in lockdown, where because I could control literally every variable, I managed to, for a few weeks, get up early. And I really enjoyed it, walking in the morning, listening to podcasts, yeah. like what you do every morning <laughs> on Instagram. However, I don't think that I perform best sure. at that time, right? And so literally, I, it is rare that I'm out of bed before like 9 a.m. So I, I don't yeah. get into the office till like half 10. And to the people in our office building, I probably look incredibly lazy, but what they don't know is that I don't leave till like half six, seven. So I'm still, I'm still getting done what I need to get done. I'm just doing it in a way that makes sense for me because, and I think this was on another one of uh, the episodes of that podcast that we keep talking about very recently, this idea that the, um, the current sleep wake structure is based around a kind of uh, a figment of history which is the kind of production line manufacturing age where you had to go to a factory mm -hmm. and stand in a place to do this for a certain number of hours 
and it just doesn't work for everybody for whatever reason. Maybe it's how we're wired. Maybe it's because of our lifestyle. Maybe it's because in your case with your job, right before you uh, went full time today, you were juggling a lot of plates. And that probably meant that you were working harder in the evenings, which meant that because of those kind of archaic working hours that you were forced to work, you probably weren't as productive then. The council were like, you know what, come in, work when you can work, do what you need to do. They probably would have got more out of you. uh, Credit where credit's due. The local authorities i think have changed that and it it came about through i think the pandemic was they've they've always had some form of flexible working but then during the pandemic as a lot of companies have it was right work from home when you can and there wasn't like a a sign on you know you have to show yourself as online it was as long as you're getting your work done you know that's fine and things moved forward better than they ever have done and it goes back to, I don't know where the, the nine to five came from. I don't know where those hours came from. I would, I would like to find out. I don't know if you know. I think it has roots in the industrial age, but, I, but I'm sure of that, that, I don't I think know. It's, it's so stupid to force. It's like, I don't want to go on a massive tangent, but it's like, um, it's like uniform. Works to an extent, but not really for everyone. And it's like, if you give people a little bit more freedom, I think like they have done in some Scandinavian countries with their schooling and their education. It's, if you give people a little bit more freedom, you'll actually get more out of them. And I don't know if that's something, um, I can't remember who said it. Whoever said like, give lazy people the hardest job because they'll always find the easiest way to do it. I don't know if it was Steve Jobs or something. I've probably butchered it completely, but it's so true. Like you give people more freedom in what they want to do, a bit more autonomy. And you actually find out that you get more out of them. You don't have to have that like line manager stood over their shoulder going, why aren't you doing this? Because people don't like that. Give them the freedom of when they go to sleep, when they wake up, what works. Just say, I need this done by the end of the week, but you decide how you do it. And then they'll, they'll be like, oh. I think the fundamental flaw of asking people to do a job a very specific way or wake up at a specific time to be in the office for a specific time is it makes the assumption that Mr. or Mrs. Line Manager knows better than you. They know who you are better than you are. They know what works for you better than you do. And when you phrase it like that, it sounds ridiculous. It's almost hyperbole how ridiculous it sounds that another person could know better than you. And yet our entire work society, bar a few innovative and forward-thinking companies, is based around that. And I truly think that that will change because this pandemic has forced us to learn that people work better on their own schedule, with their own motivation, with their own parameters and all of these things. Um, and do I think that working from home full time is no, a good I thing? I don't. I kind of tread the line between so long as you can be productive and happy at home and you have a, a nice working environment. There are companies, for example, I think Deloitte is now giving each of their employees this number might be wrong, but I think £5,000 to build their own kind of homeworking area so that they can actually be productive. And it's not like laptop club on a kitchen table next to your kid who's eating a yogurt. Like it's actually a bit more work-like. But I still think there's also benefits to being in the office to talk with your team, to feel connected. But it doesn't have to be every day and it doesn't have to be all the time. And I think that that is a shift that we'll see as we and come out of this. The whole, um, it's just something you said then about Mr. Line Manager knows best. It's why people resent Monday mornings is why people resent having to wait till four or five o'clock on a Friday afternoon to finish to then go down to the pub to see the friends or whatever it's if you get said to someone okay as long as you're in the office Monday between the hours of x and y and these are your hours that we need you there because we need to you know have a brief on everything like people would be like oh this company's great they value their employees but instead it's like you have to be here at eight till five every day you get one hour lunch that you can take between 12 and 2 
And it's like, I saw a really bizarre thing the other day. So I've lived quite a, a shit because I've never had a real job, so to speak. So I've always run businesses. I've lived quite a sheltered life from like working environments. And um, my mum went back. She's been off work for about three years, but she went back into work for a few days at a company um, a couple of weeks ago. And I went to pick her up and she was supposed to finish at 3 p.m., right? It was like a seven till three shift. And I got to the car park at quarter to three and I could see inside this building. It was like a warehouse building all of the staff were stood indoors waiting by the clock out machine. Like, for, and I'm I, at that point, you just think like, how has the management not screwed their heads on enough to realize that it feels like a massive win and a massive incentive for those employees who have finished their job. That's why they're stood by that machine, right? They've been dismissed. They've done everything they need to do. Just say, yeah, crack on, go home. Like penning people into a door until a clock says a certain time before they can leave a premises and go home. It's just utterly bizarre. And I, I fail to see how things like that Which... can and will continue, not least because our generation is, dare I say, slightly more challenging of the status quo when it comes to working. And that's why we're seeing uh, the leadership of younger companies run by younger people, for example, the London tech scene being the uh, the generation that are well, pushing the London stuff tech forward. scene is something that I think is sort of paved the way uh, i've got a really good friend of mine who works closely in that industry and he when he tells me about his office and stuff and i'm like you have rooms that you can go and just like chill in and he's like yeah he's like we all get in early for the early morning meetings whatever and then you know some people nap in the afternoon on the sofa some play fifa and i was like what but it's so alien to me because i think like you say i think that's something that was spread but i think now you're sort of confined to the big cities and again in those big cities rarely a few of them do but i do i do hope that it spreads because you're an entrepreneur yourself you know it it isn't for everyone some people like to be employed and that's absolutely fine you know there's almost with the aid of social media there's become sort of like a one entrepreneur i call it movement where people think you know if i work for myself then i can just do nothing all day and it's like it's not like that so being employed for some people is good but i do think it all needs to change if we're to get the most out of everyone moving forward. I really do. What made you make the decision to go self-employed then, given that today is day zero of official full-time self-employment? When did you first have this, this realization that civilian life wasn't for you? And um, when did you um, cross over? So it was, so I've, so because I was an engineer before I have been self-employed. However, I was never unsure about the work, if that makes sense. I was working for a company and it was to do with, it was to do with them not paying enough tax, basically. It's, I was employed in them, but I was self-employed. So I've been self-employed before, so I understood all the ins and outs of it. But it was in lockdown. I think it was, I can't remember when, the second one maybe. I don't know. Leicester seems to be in lockdown all the time, so I don't really know. It was last year, like October time, September, <laughs> October time maybe. And I was, sat on the, I was sat on the sofa with Catherine, my girlfriend, and I was scrolling through Instagram as I did. And um, some guy I follow came up and he was like, you know, we're doing this PT course. You know, it's we're coming out of lockdown. We start on this date. Like, why don't you do it? And I just sat there and I said to her, I was like, should I do that? And she was like, yeah, why not? She was like, you've never invested anything in yourself. Why not do it? So I was like, right, you're going to do it. That was on like the Thursday. It started on the Sunday. As soon as I went down to his gym and stepped foot in that door, I was like, this is what I want to do. This is like, this is me. And then that cascaded on. Um, and the reason I am self-employed now is because I there's a gym about a mile away from me. And I, I really like the layout of it. I love the guy. So I messaged the guy and I said, look, 
I'm becoming a PT. Can I work out of your gym? And he was like, yeah, sure. But he goes, look, we're not earning enough to offer you employment, but you can work out of here and we'll try and refer people to you. So there we are. That's a, that's a story, basically. So I was not forced into self-employment, but I think it will serve me well moving forward. Um, and I just, working for the council is good, but I just thought I'm 27. There's more, there seems to be more adventures for me before. And I might go back. I might go back if I have kids, whatever, you know, further down the line, if this doesn't work out, whatever. But right now, there's more adventures to be had pursuing something I really enjoy rather than that monotony of the man, the wheel. So there's something interesting you said there. And actually, local authorities and government organizations are perhaps Mm -hmm. the outlier to this rule. So what I'm about to say isn't necessarily accurate. But there's this interesting misconception that being employed by somebody else is more secure than being self-employed. And I've always found that a weird idea because... For example, let's say something catastrophic catastrophic happened today and we lost all of our clients. Well, the people who are employed through the business, i.e. the people who are on like PAYE employment contracts, would inevitably be be the first to lose their jobs, right? If there wasn't the the necessity for them, which means that the directors of a company are always going to be the last to lose their jobs. Um, the, The idea that putting your trust in you and somebody else both having a job, i.e. you and your employer, and there being enough money to pay your employer through the bit that they take off the top of you and you, and that's more secure than just being like, shit, I need to make rent this month. I need to make 600 pounds. I'm just going to go and do it. And I've got 31 days to do it. I've always found it weird that employment seems like the know, secure I option. I understand what you say. But then today I sat there in bed and I thought, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> I thought I have, I have, you know, a handful, handful of clients and I've got to make this work. But there's something exciting about knowing you have to make something work. And it sort of gives, I don't want to say it makes you feel alive, but it gives you a purpose every day to do those monotonous tasks. When you used to get an email at work and it used to be like, you need to do this and instantly you go, oh, fuck off. Like, I don't want to do that. But every time now I'm sat there and I'm thinking, if I do this, then then this might happen further down the line. You know, if I post every day, inevitably it has to. It has to work. It it can't not. You know, eventually you will have enough clients to live. Like you just have to put that work in. And there's something exciting about that, but something also very draining as well. There's an interesting um, there's an interesting almost hedonic treadmill that happens when you run a business. And it's almost that you need to chop it into little periods. It might be every three months, every six months, every year, whereby you need that reset, right? So we were we were originally called yes. Dream as an agency, spelled wrong, D-R-E-E-M, which is a terrible name because then you have to, when you're on the phone to someone spelling out your email address, it's never Dream, it's Dream, so D-R-E, just long. But um, so before the lockdown, we'd been going for a few years, we were growing a bit, but it was kind of, it was like, where do we go next? And the spark had almost gone and it felt a bit boring and it felt a bit dead endy. And so we made the decision to rebrand our business and change direction and try and launch two new arms of the business in the middle of a pandemic. And because we broke it up into like a begin again moment, suddenly once more, I'm really, really excited. And I have no doubt that two or three years down the line, when there's 10 or 15 of us in an office and things are tough, I am again going to think, shit, this is like, this feels suffocating again and we'll have to do it again and again. I think the nice thing is when you're in control, you kind of get to decide when those moments are and do something about it. What was, you say the reasoning behind the rebranding was just that it wasn't working as the dream, D-R-E-M. 
it's a, <laughs> a very long story, but the the headlines of it are essentially um, I'm not sure I've ever said this before in a in a public domain, but essentially we we came up with the name Dream in 2012. There was another business who launched after we did, but they had the foresight to register trademarks and we did not right. back in the day, right? They are, I don't know why I'm stepping around. It's very easy to find who they are. Just put a dot com on the end of the bloody name I just mentioned, but they are like a venture backed enormous, like tens of millions in the bank company um, who in fairness to them, never caused us any trouble. They didn't get in touch. They didn't threaten anything. However, as we saw on the horizon, the opportunity to grow further, it seemed like a bad idea to grow a business and to grow the brand and to put our content around a name that was never really secure. And so we went into this process of, um, we knew that we were about to launch new things. We needed a new name. And so truthfully, we basically just looked at resale domains, um, uh, looked at the ones that were within our budget, which was still disgustingly expensive and then picked the best one. And so we are now Pata. Is that actually a true story? <laughs> That's fantastic. I wish there was more to it, but this is the thing with business, isn't it? Like um, you kind of touched on this before we started recording when you said that we we all look at people who are in like an interesting position and we think that they got there through nothing but like intentional action and foresight and planning. Whereas in reality, the more people I speak to, particularly people in like high up positions who I one day aspire to be like, they're just fucking winging it, but they're winging it with enough accuracy and enough intention that actually it kind of goes in the right direction and all people mm-hmm. see is that direction, right? They, they don't wing see it, they but get they there. wing it with experience. And that, and, and exactly. Yeah. And you get a slight bit better because at winging you know it every time. Which way to go. You know, the more experience you have, you, you do know what works and what doesn't work. So if you've tried a hundred things and they don't work, then you're sort of narrowing it down a lot and eventually you'll get that right one. And then successful people, they, they usually just stick around long enough in order to become successful. Nine times out of 10, anyone sort of in the fitness industry, unless like you, go, and this is a problem this day and age, like unless you go on like Love Island or something like that and, and you, also, you have half a million followers at the click of a finger, it's usually just the people who stick around. And the fitness industry isn't really a good one to, to use because you, usually you have to be good looking as well. And that's where, the, you know, good looking, do a photo shoot, go on Love Island and you're pretty much made, but... The ones who actually build good businesses are the ones that just stick around. Like Ollie Carson, he's someone I've had on this podcast, uh, amazing in the industry, but he's been doing it for 10 years. But people have only seen the last sort of 12, 14 months where he's built this incredible business, but he's been doing the, the back work for 10 years. And, you know, 10 years ago, I was running around Nottingham as a student. And like, you think, you know, where could I be in 10 years time? And that's what's exciting about being self-employed, I think. It's not just what's the next promotion. It's it's what can I grow, and I'm sure the same is for you. So there's a um, there's an interesting story that springs to mind as you say that. And anyone listening who's listened to my podcast, I apologise. I've told the story like <laughs> fucking four hundred times. But under my bed, it used to be at the end of my bed, but I moved my room around. Under my bed, there are a bunch of Apple boxes, and the reason I have kept Apple boxes for devices that have long left me like there's an iPhone box under there from a phone that got stolen from me when I was drunk in London one night right why do I still have the box well I still have the box because when I was in school um, I come from like a a not well-off background and lots of people in my school came from a well-off background and so I would be sat there and you know kids would come in after Christmas and they'd be like oh I've got the iPhone 3GS and I would think like it's literally impossible, like by definition, impossible for me to be able to buy that phone right now. Like 
I didn't have the money. I knew for a fact my parents didn't have the money. So what was I going to do? It was impossible for me to have that phone. But of course, as life does, you fast forward a few years. And then the idea of buying a phone when you're employed and making a bit of money is just like, it's just a Tuesday, isn't it? Like it's nothing. Of course, you're able to buy a phone. Like you're probably doing something wrong if you can't at that point. And the reason I keep those boxes is because it's this interesting reminder that the inevitable, sorry, the impossible eventually becomes inevitable, right? The thing that seems utterly out of reach um, one day with enough consistent action. And like you say, this is the point I'm speaking to just sticking at something for long enough becomes absolutely inevitable. And um, an interesting example of that is I always go, it seems like you go to to fitness analogies and stories. I always go to music, right? So Ed Sheeran, very interesting, interesting one because he maybe 13, 14 years ago was doing open mic nights, had nowhere to stay, would literally at the end of the night have to say on stage, like, can I stay at somebody's house? And if he couldn't, he would get onto a night bus and he would just sleep, right? He was doing so many gigs and had nowhere to stay and was making no money that he would sometimes just sleep on a bus. If you were to get on that bus and sit next to Ed and say in 10 years time, you're going to play the biggest show of your life at Glastonbury. And then after that, you're going to do the highest grossing, longest world tour ever and gross half a billion pounds in revenue during it. He would be like, absolutely ridiculous, not a chance. But that impossible became inevitable through nothing but consistent action and a few million quid from a label, but nothing but consistent action, right? Because he only got that label through exactly. consistent open mic nights and then small gigs. And then, and people always want the end result without putting in that work. And if anything, I'm scared of the end result. I'm scared of the day when I wake up and think I've made it. I was talking to my friend Chloe the other day, and I said that the reason I don't buy lottery tickets is because I don't want to win the lottery. And I, I mean that seriously. People are like, fuck off. If, if someone gave you 145 million, of course you'd say yes. And I probably would, but I would do it like, with with yeah. half of a doubt in my yeah. mind because if you wake up and you have all that money like what are you working for if you wake up and you've made it quote unquote because you built the business and exited it or whatever what are you working for and i i like that process that jumping from impossible to inevitable far more than i do getting to the point where so you true. have arrived and this is why this is why I, I hate the idea of retirement and i think i think a, a pension and retirement we we're, we're basing these ideas and this structure on on what like where the pensions came from it it was um oh fuck i listened to a book on it it was something to do with someone in scotland and basically when someone men always died young so when they died young you know the church had this pot of money and they gave it to the widows and then they thought oh well when people get older we can just give them more and it grew and grew and grew and the idea of of working till i'm 67 68 maybe 70, retiring, having 15, 20 years, if I'm lucky, to do what I want seems preposterous. Why not just do what I want now and but do it for the rest of my life? I just, I don't know. I was talking to a few of the lads in work and, and they were like, oh yeah, but I retire in a few years and then, you know, I might get a house by the sea and, you know, me and the miss will get a couple of dogs. And I'm like, why can't you do that now? You could do it now. If you wanted to do that now, you could do it now, but it's, you don't want to do it. You like the idea of it. You like the idea of doing what you want because you've been forced into this construct for your entire life. I just think pen retirements are stupid. And like a... you say, like do what you want early. You failed however many business and now you're doing one which is successful. You know, will it work out in 10 years? Maybe. Will it? You might have to change direction, but it's at least you're doing what you want. 
I think it's a um, that face I was pulling just then was me <laughs> desperately trying to think of this bloke's name before you finish speaking. Um, I think it's Peter Thiel who asks a question to companies who are part of Y Combinator. Something like he'll, he'll ask, what's your five-year goal? And they'll say, oh, in five years, we want 100,000 users and 60% paying, blah, blah, blah. And then he follows it up immediately of how can you do that in six months? And I've tried to be doing that ever since I heard that. I've tried to be doing that both in business, like in March, it's normally in February, we have our end of year meeting where the free directors sit down and we talk about how the year, like the financial year has gone. We did it in March this year because lockdown. Uh, and we made a five-year plan, right? We made like a, because we were doing some exercise, we did like one year, five year, 10 year, 20 year or something, but it gets yeah, like more distant and blurry the further you go. But the five-year stuff was fairly clear, fairly um possible to aim in the direction of right and now we're trying to do it not necessarily in six months but like one of those two arms of the business that were dreamed up in that room today uh the prototype is done the test day was done we've got what we needed from it we're about to start reaching out to clients like we're four and a half years early on that second one's a bit of a bigger struggle because we need a fucking warehouse um but we've uh, we've been having conversations with connections about that and things are in motion i think that we'll reach our five-year goals in about a year and a half from the date when we set them and i'm doing the same in life things like the podcast right i'm reaching out to guests which frankly it's ridiculous for me to reach out to with the number of listeners i get but i think that the only way to um, eventually get them is just to keep trying until you start landing them and then that will build the initial momentum I believe entirely in what you just said, which is that like, if you have a goal or if you have an idea, why delay it? And I, there, there are two arguments here and I'm not sure which one's right. There is the first school of thought, which is that we're quote unquote conditioned from a young age to always offset the inevitable to be like good little workers, right? So you have to get your SATs to do good GCSEs, to get your A-levels, to go to uni, to get a degree, to get a grad job, to get a job, to fucking buy a house, to retire, to die. And it's like, at what point in all of those milestones do you actually have that, that self-actualization where you think I've made it? And the other school of thought is just that people um, want to offset their happiness to a future point in time because to do so avoids having to take responsibility now. I don't know which of those two, if any, are correct, but I think that there's an absolute case to be made for just literally, if you're listening to this now, immediately after you finish listening, go and and you speak about it every bloody morning on Instagram. When I wake up like six hours after you've been for your walk, like groggy eyed and it's like 10 a.m. I watch it and you say it, you're like, go and do something today to change things. Don't wait until next June. Don't wait until after lockdown. Don't wait until you get your house. Start it now. The reason I say that is because it took me probably 10 years of education to realize that that's what you needed to do to be happy. And I'm not talking like, you know, lying on a beach in the Maldives with a cocktail happy. I mean, like, just generally happy day to day. Like you don't have to be jumping out. And I don't personally believe anyone jumps out of bed every single day, fucking buzzing for their day, no matter what they do. But I never do. But I'm I terrible in the mornings. And the quote I say is like, just do something today that your future self will be proud of. And it might be, it might be as small. It literally might be as small as getting eight hours sleep or eating like well for you from breakfast till dinner or reading 10 minutes of a book or whatever it is going to the gym like just do something today where tomorrow at the end of the day or to the next day you'll wake up and you'll go i'm really glad i did that yesterday and like my girlfriend's a prime example of this um so she moved over to england initially for what she thought was going to be a dream job it didn't turn out like that it was shit she had sort of in the middle of a pandemic this sort of i'm going to use the word crisis because it sort of was for like six weeks where she was just living off savings like what what am i going to do and 
that was July last year. So maybe let's say a year ago in essence. She is now running probably one of the most successful VA businesses. It definitely in Leicester, if not, you know. And I just I just look at it and that's just because she found something that she loves doing and she doesn't mind doing the work in the evenings. You know, she might take a bit of time off in the day then do it in the evenings. And I've seen her work seven days a week and stuff. And it's just incredible what you can do when you actually enjoy what you do. And like you say, taking those risks, reaching out to people and, and saying, look, I can give you this. Just give me a chance. If you want to come on my podcast, you know, I don't get many listeners, but I thought I'd reach out. And you ask 100 people, two might say yes, but it's two more than you had. James, yeah. There's also a uh, a more interesting element, to, sorry, a more boring element to this, which is that um, you can, I believe, have objective measures to subjective mm. happiness. Like and by that. that, I mean that I literally live through a spreadsheet. I do it every now and then. I've actually switched it back on today again because of the long weekend and me thinking like, how do I kind of refine what I'm doing here? But there was a period between the 1st of January, 2018 and maybe September that year. So a good couple of hundred days where I tracked, I think 14 habits at the time, every single day in a spreadsheet. And that wasn't tracking for the sake of tracking. It was tracking because I knew that if I did those things, the day would be a success. And if I did those things and they would add up and I would eventually be, I don't want to say a better person because that's a bit twatty, but you know what I mean? Like slightly healthier, slightly happier, slightly this and that. Um, and I think that that's where happiness comes from. I think that it is just doing the best that you can do and you can do the best that you can do through objective measures because uh, to take your girlfriend's example right it might be the case that the objective measure the, the subjective happiness is i want my business to um sustain itself uh, to give me work and to give me freedom but then the objective measure of that is in order to do that i need to reach out to 13 new potential clients today and then when you can see like the i literally so i have a little formula in google sheets where if I type N in the box, it goes red. We don't like that. If I type Y for yes, it goes green, right? Every time there's a green box, I'm moving slightly more towards that point of happiness or healthiness or productivity or whatever. I think that people overcomplicate happiness because it is this weird um, abstract thing, but actually you can make it to very me, simple. Happiness, and another guest I had on, my mate Stu, he said that to him, happiness is peace, but to find peace, it's fulfillment. So he says, however, which way you can find fulfillment in your life, you in essence, in, in essence become happy. So for me, fulfillment might be, you know, a few clients doing a gym session myself, recording a podcast. I go to bed happy at the end of the day. Some people it's reading a book, going for a walk, you know, taking the dog out, whatever it is. You're like, if you feel fulfilled, then you'll, you'll be happy. And I think this is why people get happy when they go on holidays, because they can do what they want and they can fulfill themselves with all these cool activities and they can design their own day and they become happy, but it's for a week. But if imagine if you could do that for, for nine months of the year, 10 months of the year, you know, everyone has a few shit weeks. That's fine. But majority, 75% of your time, you could be happy. You just have to literally design the life that you want and, and you can do it. Anyone can do it no matter how old you are. Okay. Maybe not if you're like 92, but you've probably lived a life by then. So you're pretty happy. But it's true. One thing I did want to touch on. Um, <laughs> so we've been through, you mentioned it in your podcast with Don McGregor that I listened to. And you're on about like the educational system. And you mentioned, I don't know if it was in that podcast or one before, like you said about your school and stuff and how there was a real, a real mix 
you know, some people were quite well off, some people weren't well off, some people, and I went to a similar school in my secondary school and it was like, some people had an Xbox and a PS5 and some people had, couldn't even afford school shoes. There was such a disparity and I just wanted to get your thoughts on the educational system and what you think of like the formalities of it. Education is a weird one for me for that reason because I look back on my time. So the school I went to, the secondary school, Brook Weston, I look back on it in such a bittersweet way. The reason being, right? So from an education point of view, I think that the education system is nonsense through necessity. And that's going to make me unpopular with the few teachers who listen to my podcast and the school that's just invited me to speak <laughs> at their school in July, right? That's not going to make me popular. But I fit what, what I mean by that. And I was on a podcast with two guys, two teachers. The podcast is called Two Teachers a few weeks back. And they agreed with me, right? You can't design a system which caters for the needs of everybody when you've got 130 people in a year group and seven year groups on the go at any one time. And so as a result of that, through, I would argue, necessity, education has to kind of round off the edges of people and turn them into people who can for seven hours a day sit in a classroom without being too disruptive and hopefully pick up a bit of knowledge to then take it through to an exam which probably won't have any bearing on their life so that they can then go to university and do a degree that if they get lucky and if they make a good guess when they're 17 and a half they do a degree in something they like if not in the case of many of my friends who did go to university they then leave university and that's where their life begins right that's where the decision making begins from that point of view i think that education is broken but I don't, I don't have the answers because I understand exactly why it is. Like I could sit here and dream up some nonsense theory about, oh, every, like there should be classes of five and everyone should have one-on-one time, but it's just not going to happen, is it? And so from that point of view, I think that it's a shame that education is the way it is. And also Brooke Weston pushes an enormous percentage of people towards university for no reason other than they can then say in their prospectus that we had 96% of people yeah. going to higher education and 24 of them went to Oxbridge, like that means anything. So from that point of view, Brooke Weston, I was like, mm, not so good. But then I cannot thank enough my school for turning me into somebody who is a bit responsible and a bit like an adult by the time I left school, right? And I was saying this on... I think it was on the two teachers podcast or maybe it was undeveloped. I've done too many podcasts recently, but basically I was saying at some point recently on microphone that some of the things that Brooke Weston taught me and teaches everybody who goes through that school is different to most schools are really, really important for when you go out into adult life, right? For example, you have to dress really well. You have to have your tie done properly with your top button done up. And of course, when you're in year seven, you think, oh, fuck off, what's the point? But actually that's teaching you that if you dress like a prick and present yourself untidily, people will rightly or wrongly perceive you to be unreliable or untidy or messy or whatever it might be. Like that's just teaching you facts because that's what life is like. Um, you didn't get a playtime. Like there was no playtime or playground because in what job do you at, quarter past 11 in the morning hear a bell and then go fucking screaming in a bit of concrete for 30 minutes and chucking balls at each other so we didn't have that there was no staff room because the the staff and the teachers ate food with you on like mixed tables in a restaurant you couldn't have food outside of the restaurant you couldn't carry a backpack around all day because all of these things happened uh like they do in the real world so mixing that kind of structure of feeling like you're an adult and being treated like an adult already with that very interesting mix of people from all sorts of, I guess, economic backgrounds and the experiences that each of them bring with them. Um, through from teaching you, I'm not sure if empathy, empathy is the right word, but teaching you to be wary of and 
look out for the benefit of those who evidently don't have a lot of money to make sure that some dickhead from the opposite end of the spectrum isn't taking the piss out of them through to understanding that you know aspirational jobs and so on are obtainable because john over there's mum is the head of finance at barclays like that kind of stuff all mixed together just yeah. made it really incredible it sounds like you um sounds like it was a bit better than what upping was <laughs> how was uh, i, I mean it's it's changed a lot since i went there it's changed i mean fucking when when you ask that it's like i was there from 2005 that's when i started so it's a long time ago so it's obviously changed a lot but back then you know it was very teachers pupils you know and you had the disruptive kids and then it was i don't know i didn't i didn't really like school that much but like I said, it taught me some invaluable things. And then it I think I enjoy learning now because I learn I learn about the things which interest me. And I, I was saying this to Catherine the other day, we were having the same conversation about education. And I was saying, I really think that we should just encourage kids to, if they're good at something, then try and pursue it. If they want to be creative, let them be creative. Don't try and funnel them into what the prospectus wants or whatever it's called, the, the education thing. It's not everyone is good with numbers. Not everyone's good with words. Not everyone's good at drawing or sport or something. But I think it's good to have an underlying knowledge of everything, but then really look at what you enjoy and just go for it. Because imagine if someone had told you at 16 years old that you could leave school, you could start your own business and run with it, but you just have to do something which interests you. I think a lot of people now would be better off for that. But the problem is you come out of it you get pushed into A-levels and then, oh, you don't want to do A-levels. Well, then you can't go to university and you have to go to university. And Do you need to go to university? No. Does it help? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know what the answer, I don't know what the answer my, is. Um, trying to find my GCSE results. The only record I have of them is, here we go, in an email from the 21st of August, 2012 at 9 a.m., which I had to send contractually to the producers of Young Apprentice so that they could wrap it up into a press release, right? Because something you just said then is really interesting. So I have GCSEs. I couldn't tell you this from memory. I have GCSEs in the following subjects, right? IT, science, photography, business studies, English, English literature, hospitality, maths, media studies, and additional science. On what fucking planet... And it would be interesting to know the history of how this was dreamed up. But on what planet do I need kind of fragmented, dispersed knowledge in like 12 things? And also what book or what study or what piece of theory has ever said that the best way to learn and retain knowledge and become good at something is to chop your day up into oh, five one hour yeah. blocks where the first 10 minutes you're getting settled, you then do a tiny bit of work. And then for the next 10 minutes, you get unsettled, leave, and then you don't do it again for a week. I think that there should be fewer GCSEs that are more focused so that we can all and look you may make the wrong decision you may do gcses and things you hate but spoiler that's coming down the road anyway because when you go to university you yep. have to pick something so at least try and get good at it no, in the meantime i, I don't know i just there's, there's i could speak on this for hours but i don't I know the answers that's i the think problem. if i was to if i was to strip everything back and redesign the education system i think i personally believe everyone should have a basic understanding of math english and science i think that bit's correct what areas of English and maths and science you need to learn, I don't know. But I think that's good to have because simple things like like working with money, you know, you have to have a basic understanding of maths to work with money, percentages, etc., tax, you know, it does help. So that, yes, English, yes, being able to structure a letter and an email. 
those things fucking help you. I think that what else would I do? I would I would get rid of try and get rid of sets. I don't know if you've read the mindset book by Carol Dweck. She speaks about this, like having sets just sets people up for failure because it's like, oh, I'm in bottom set for math, so I don't have to try because I'm gonna fail anyway. You can only if you if you're doing foundation, you can only get to see. Who who's just who's about to made say that this? That, that's you know when a memory unlocks. I completely forgot that, that was even a thing until literally you said that. It's bonkers that we sit half of a year group in an exam where they are destined to at the very best just Who's about made pass. That rule? Like what does that tell you about your ability exactly. for the rest of your life? It, I don't know. I I could I could moan about the edge cases. I think some parts are good, I think some parts are bad. I don't know what the answer is unless there's a full reform. I don't think there's an answer. However, one question I do have to ask you before we do finish, we've been going on for a while. It's your little journey through sobriety because it's something that's really interesting to me because every time I go out, I think this is the one I'm going to, I'm going to be sober now. And, so, and I might do like three weeks and then it's like, sit back in it. I don't, I don't have a problem with alcohol. Like it annoys me when I'm hungover and I don't get anything done that day, but I don't drink in the week. I, I binge, but you know, every few weeks, I don't, I personally don't have a problem, but it's interesting from your perspective, perspective, why you went you started sobriety journey and sort of why you're carrying it on it's going to be the patchiest answer ever because it was never intentional ironically after everything we've spoken about so it was 2017 i believe the summer and i was in london for a friend of mine who had a gig at the o2 in islington and um you know, similar to you, I definitely don't think, although somebody on my podcast has since argued and made a fairly good case that maybe I did have a problem, but I don't think I had a problem with alcohol. However, I would always take things to the extreme. So whilst I could happily go for four, five, six weeks without drinking, when I went out, I would just get wrecked, right? So the example this night was that I, we had an office in Cardiff at the time. So I was in the office for the day and then I went from the office to Cardiff Central and I grabbed like a four pack of dark fruits from bloody cost saver direct or some like random corner shop right drank those on the train which to be fair like my body weight at the time given like blood uh, levels of alcohol probably a bad idea to begin with but I wasn't really thinking that um because I was like what 20 21 at the time and like you just don't consider these things right so then it only really hit me when i got off at paddington and stood on the tube and i was stood up on the tube and you know when the tube first moves it's like quite a jolt i was like whoa like whoa that's hit me um got to the weatherspoons across the road from the venue of the gig and um we had like 20 minutes until we were going to go in because my train was delayed so i went to the bar and um Ironically, I now like IPAs, which I had never heard of at the time and had never tried. But there was this like printed out A4 sheet on the bar, which was like manager special IPAs, £1.50 each. I was like, I'll have four. And so I got four of those to like pre-drink with and a pint glass and just put them in, down it, down it, down it. Easy. So by the time I got to the gig, I was fucking wrecked, frankly. Um, I probably weighed like eight stone and I had eight alcohol drinks in me already. Um, and then that just continued for the rest of the night drinking at the bar um bumped into alfie days that's a tangent but i drunkenly bumped into one of the biggest youtubers on the planet got a selfie and then asked him what his instagram username was and at the time of course he had built his brand for 10 years around pointless blog and he was like you're joking it's pointless blog obviously but that's the last thing i remember because after that i'm informed that we went to like a 
nightclub and I'm informed that I was sick in the Weatherspoons on the way and I'm informed that I didn't get laid because I was too drunk so I fell asleep outside in the five guys doorway and then I can kind of connect the dots to guess that what I did is because I couldn't get in I looked at my phone I set Google Maps to take me from that club that I was outside of to St Pancras to get a train home and I was going to get a train home but the next thing I remember is um walking to try and find a police station because in between all of that somewhere in this like hours long blackout drunk period that I had I got mugged and I'd love to tell you that it was horrific and traumatic but frankly I don't remember so it couldn't have been that bad but basically um two guys I remember two guys that's all I remember there was two guys and I was like cornered on a doorstep and they took like my watch and my phone my wallet my keys I don't know what they wanted my keys for and then they had an argument between themselves as to whether they wanted to steal my rail card or not and I'm like look guys I look nothing like you what do you need a rail card for? And they decided to give that back to me. Um, so I get to this police station. Um, this is a funny story in itself, right? I'm walking these streets. Kind, you know, when you um, something major yeah. happens and you kind of sober up a bit. I'd kind of sobered up a bit and I'm walking around these streets uh, and I see a police fan. I think, oh, thank God, I found the police, right? So I'm knocking on the windows of this police fan thinking, why, why can't they answer? Like, where are they? I'm looking through the windows. I'm thinking like, where are they? Are they... Are they like on an undercover job? Of course, they're not on a police fan. It's very obvious. I saw it. I couldn't work out for the life of me why there were no police in there. And then I turned around. Like, I literally looked behind me and there was a police station. I was like, oh, shit. That's why it's parked outside. So I walked into the police station. Um, so there was that night where it was like, you know, yeah. all of those bad things came about because of alcohol. There was another night a few months later where I went to a friend's housewarming party and they just got a hot tub and like oh, sick of the hot tub no. and like just all these silly things where I'm like, it's... It's not that it was necessarily the worst thing in the world because I was a kid who was like 19 or 20 and I was doing what 19 yeah. and 20 year olds do. But then on top of all of that, there was the blackout drunk. There was the hangovers. There was, I didn't know the word at the time, but I probably looking back, call it anxiety of waking up hungover the and fear. thinking, what the fuck did I do for those two hours in the local the nightclub? Exactly. And so all of that came to a head in December, 2017, where I was still in that phase, but we had like, a bunch of client parties uh, and then a big one in Mahiki. And then uh, it was like between Christmas and New Year. I did a couple of nights out in Corby. And then I went back to Wales and did the night out before New Year's Eve and then New Year's Eve. And so I just didn't feel like drinking for a while on the first few days of January. And I did a tweet on, I think, the 4th of January 2018, where I was like, hey, I'm doing a night out with clients and I'm not drinking and this isn't so bad. Maybe I'll do the whole of January. And then the whole of January passed and I thought, this is all right, actually. I'm saving a bit of money here. You know, I was like 20 years old, I didn't have a lot of money. And suddenly I'm saving like fucking 40% of my money by not going out every weekend. I was like, this is decent. Maybe I will do a hundred days. And that spreadsheet I spoke about of building those cornerstone habits around those hundred days. I thought actually this is a nice catalyst to make some positive change. And then the hundred days were up and I was like, it would be silly to go back at this point because this is a good little streak. So then I thought maybe I'll do it until Radio 1's big weekend in Swansea that year. But then I got to Radio 1's big weekend and I was like, oh, I really fancy a coffee. <laughs> so there I am with all these people moshing with their dark fruits. And I'm like, oh, flat white, please. Um, and so I was only ever going to do it until one year. And then one year passed and I was going to do it yeah. until two years. And then I was purposely on the two year anniversary going to have a shot to ruin it. Not because I planned to go back to drinking, but because I didn't want the pressure of there being yeah. like however many days since I'd last drank. But then I'm like, why would I do that? And now, truthfully, the only reason I still don't drink um, as two reasons, actually. And Chris Williamson has um, 
on the podcast headbutted me about one of them because I'm like, oh, I, I, I don't want to go back because I wonder what it would be like. And he said that the curiosity of wondering will eventually lead me back to try and drinking again. I'm not sure. But the other is that just I've seen the other side. I've seen the alternative that the far majority of people never see, which is that alcohol is great and has a purpose for most people. But if ever you find yourself questioning, which I did, problem or not questioning whether you should be drinking that's probably a massive red flag to say you should not be drinking right because it is not to sound like the boring guy in the corner of a party like but it is a drug and it is a thing that inhibits us and that changes our physical and mental state and has all of these health implications Uh, and on top of that in my case got me mugged and made me have blackout moments and gave me anxiety and so when I did those first 30 days and I materially felt all of those benefits of not drinking it now seems as alien to me as the idea of if someone was like, Sean, why don't you start smoking? I'd be like, why the fuck would I start smoking? Sean, why don't you take bloody heroin? I'd be like, why would I do that? And I know, I know that they're not mean, comparable, yeah. but you know what I mean? Yeah. It now feels that alien because I've seen the alternative. Uh, the only caveat I would say is that we work with alcohol brands um, and I truly have no issue with drinking. I have no issue with people drinking themselves, do what you want, but just personally, now that I felt the benefits, it just seems weird to go back to doing something that cost me so much time and money and energy and like emotional capacity. And so that is the 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 long answer the roundabout question. question. I think it's I think it's fascinating. I I think I'll dabble with it at some point in my life. I don't think I'm at a stage yet where I not necessarily need to nor want to. Um, but I think definitely, and it it's probably I know this sounds quite silly, but it's probably when the time comes where I decide to have children when we decide to have children i think you know if Kath- if it is Catherine and i have children with and, and she's pregnant for nine months i'll be like i'll do that with you bit of moral support but i think I, there is a time and a place for not drinking you know like chris says again i know he's a big advocate of it so this is why i reference him again for the hundredth time in this podcast sorry chris um it's like if you just drink maybe like once every two months or even just once a month if you just drink once a month you will be miles ahead than people who drink every weekend, like so far ahead. And it's not saying like, I'm not looking down on people that are drinking. That's not what I'm doing. What I'm saying is if, you, if you're happy doing an employed nine to five, going out of the weekend, fine. Like that's not a problem. But if you're moaning about that and don't want to be in that cycle, then you have to do something about it. And the biggest thing you can do, two biggest things you can do to begin with is get more sleep and stop drinking for a bit. Because then you'll have more money, more energy, and more time. And in those three things, you can do whatever you want. And this is why I think so many people questioned or have questioned during lockdown, furlough, the pandemic, what they're doing. Because they're like, actually, there's loads of time in the day if you can decide what you do with that time in the day. You know, we couldn't go out. We couldn't drink. Everyone was at the laptops, at the phones. And they're like, I could, I could build this. I can do this. Everyone started these little things. And it was great to see. But now it's like, just don't slip back into old ways, please. Like by all means, go out and socialise. But by all means, if you were doing something creative or building something, just carry it on. Don't let it fall by the wayside because you'll regret it. So go on, you're about to say something. So the last thing I want to do is sound judgmental in what I'm about to say in the same vein as what you just said. Like, I'm not trying to be a dick yeah. who's like, oh, look at these people because everyone has stories that I'm absolutely not aware of. However, a piece of perspective that I have learned since I stopped drinking and I may be wrong 
but is that lots of people go out on the weekends and they go hard because they are trying to numb the boredom or the mundanity, mm-hmm. if that's a word, of the Monday to Friday, nine to five, right? And so in order to forget how much they don't like their job or they just bores them, they spend the weekend kind of going all out. But there's a weird irony there, which is that using that time in quite a self-destructive way and spending all of your time and energy and even in some cases, lots of your money in such a way that is very like living for the immediate moment at the cost of a future version of yourself consumes all of the time that you would otherwise have to put into place steps that could get you out of that situation that you don't like. It's a no brainer, isn't it? Sometimes. But then we're all great at giving advice, but then we're all terrible at taking our own, aren't we? That's something I've learned. <laughs> I am the worst, honestly. Pe- people text me, they're like, oh, what should I do with this thing? I'm like, oh, so easy, do like X, Y, Z. And I know if I was in the situation, I would not be doing X, Y, Z. I'd be like worrying and procrastinating on it. It's so easy to say. It's so hard to do. But I have, um, I know this is going out on your page as well, So, but I do have a question that I ask everyone who comes on the show. And it's, what's your biggest insecurity? That's an interesting one to think about, because if you were to ask me a few years ago, the list would be never ending, but also I wouldn't admit to having any, if that makes sense back then. I don't really know now. Um, Truthfully, actually, I do know. I know exactly what it is, and it's very apt for your uh, line of work. It is the fact that I look like a fucking potato when I take my top off these days. So I went for a period for a year and a half back in the same period when I had the spreadsheet, right, where I was hitting the gym like five times a week eating very healthily, getting enough protein, getting enough sleep, getting enough water. And I look back at the pictures on my camera roll now and I went from like quite concerningly underweight looking, like genuinely there's a picture on my phone where it looks like I'd I'd never know it because I knew no different. But I look back at that progress picture and I'm like, fucking hell, like you can see bones in places that I didn't know bones existed to like, I wouldn't say like wham, but I look at the pictures now and I got a bit of a pump on. I'm like, fucking hell, fair play, mate. But then like, I kind of, I reached a point where I was like, yeah, I'm happy. So I'm going to have a few weeks off and stop working with my personal trainer. And then that turned into lockdown, which turned into a year and a half of eating McDonald's and doing nothing. And now I'm like, oh, I got a bit of a dad bod and I'm not sure if they're in fashion anymore. Um, but with that said, trying to do something about it. So hopefully a year from now, the, uh, the dad bod will be gone and the, the, the wham bod, bod will be I back. Like I think just this is going to be the last thing I say. Otherwise we're just going to carry on chatting for another three hours and it will turn into a Joe Rogan episode. But, um, I, I, I do believe that everyone should do some form of fitness in their life, whether it be gym, because it teaches you the, what's the word, the benefits of the small incremental changes that get you to where you need to be. Like no one gets a good body overnight. Like it takes time, but by going to the gym and seeing that you can apply that to any other area of your life. It just trains the mind into thinking if I just lift an extra rep every day with a little bit extra weight, by the time the end of the year comes, you know, I can bench 30 kilos more than what I did and like you say at the beginning the very beginning of the episode well it's nice because we've gone full circle but those small changes every day will change your body will change your life will change everything about you if you just put the plan in place and follow it and that's where I'm going to finish on those points so thank you very much uh, for talking to me and taking your Tuesday afternoon too so even though it's glorious weather outside we're both sat inside chatting on Zoom, but such is life in this day and age. I've, uh, for the for the sake of audio quality, I closed both of my windows because there's kids outside playing football and man, it's hot in here now. <laughs> so I'm too sweaty. But no, thank you so much, Sean. And um, I will speak to you soon. 
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible Irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.